0: This is Michael Gulakis, and you're listening to The Cinematography Podcast.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to The Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras,
0: a program about the art, craft, and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock, and Ilya Friedman.
1: Hey, Ilya. Hey, Ben. We are halfway to episode 90. We are at episode 45. We're at 45, that's right. 45 episodes of this, which means that there's like uh, 90 hours of material for anyone who's listened to every single episode. There's
2: actually more, because we also have special episodes, and we have some episodes that go like nearly two hours. So um, yeah,
1: but the good news is that people seem to keep liking our show. Well, it really has, I think, turned into slowly what I hoped we would create when we first started talking about it. And, you know, we're getting, you know, like our last episode, Ellen Cure Us, and uh, the individual that we have on today who we'll mention in a second. But anyone who has this on their podcast app already knows who it is. So why the cloak and dagger, Ben? I don't know. <laughs> anyway. So, hey, continuing, we
2: should come up with a name for this segment, I think, because uh, it is it's something that's, you know, topical.
1: Yeah, we need to come up with some kind of Lindsay
2: potables. That's <laughs>
1: some, some kind of cinematography related uh, pun, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Focal point, circle of confusion. What Ooh, do you want to do? God, I, I, I don't know. But Ben, this is your bugaboo this time. So uh, so well, my bugaboo, and and this is an ongoing bugaboo that I've had for a long time, and anyone who's ever talked to me about this has heard me complain about this, is the lack of respect. Never heard you that, complain about that it genre. The lack <laughs> of respect that genre films get, mm. uh, specifically horror films. But I, you could include some sci fi in that. I think that some fantasy. I, I think that a lot of it gets kind of the short shrift. I want to read a quote to you from one of my favorite writers of all time, Kurt Vonnegut, who started out as a sci fi writer, but I think wrote some of the most profound philosophical writing of the 20th century, frankly, like kind of the Mark Twain of the 20th century with kind of sci fi overtones in some of his work. But he wrote. I have been a sore headed occupant of a file drawer labeled science fiction. And I would like out particularly since so many serious critics regularly mistake the drawer for a urinal.
2: Oh, man. <laughs> and I think I, I, I
1: think that that's kind of what happens in the horror world as well as uh, on the regular. I feel like there's I, I, I've spoken about this before. But, like, having worked on the original Blair Witch Project, the the fact that the studio, most of the people who, who were behind this decision aren't really in the business anymore. Like, they wanted the sequel to Blair Witch to be, like, more gore and tits. Because, you know, that's what made people go see the Blair Witch Project was all the gore and all the tits. And if you haven't seen it, there is no gore and there are no tits. <laughs> uh, I, I believe that in certain sectors of the business, there's a belief that a horror fan... Uh, can be reduced to basically a disturbed 15-year-old incel boy who uh, just wants to see gore and wants to see terrible things happen to people and will one day be like a mass murderer or serial killer when the truth of course is that statistically more women than men like horror for instance which is not necessarily the most intuitive thing but this uh, this is statistically what has been learned. Really? The, yes. the
2: women tick more of the boxes for horror than the men.
1: True. Huh, interesting. also like as a giant horror fan and a lifelong horror fan the people who love this they're all over the spectrum. There's a uh, a friend of mine, Graham Skipper, has been doing these horror speakeasies in L.A., which is like a pop-up bar that he'll do like once or twice a month. And it's like a wonderful group of hilariously fun, witty, smart people show up. And, you know, the, what what ties them all together? Some of them make horror movies. Some of them just love horror movies or whatever. But it, it's our it's our love of a genre. And I feel like when you look back in time, you know, like what are the the early movies that we remember? A lot of them are like The Wolfman and and Dracula And Frankenstein and some of those things are, you know, kind of what set the cinematic language that we have in place to this day. And I think that just horror films don't get enough. They just don't get enough fucking respect. And I think that there's often a baked in belief that the people who make them are hacks and the people who like them are debased. Now, having worked recently for um, Shudder which is a streaming video on demand service that specializes in horror. One of the things that I loved about working with Shutter is the executives there, everybody there, they all share this love of horror, and they're, they're not just phoning it in. It's not, not just a job. They'd much rather be making Hallmark movies. If they're phoning it in, they're doing it rather well. And they have a guy curating their channel named Sam Zimmerman, and Sam is as real uh, a horror aficionado as you're as you're likely to find. And so, when you if you were to join Shutter, and I'm not, I'm sorry, I, I this is probably the fifth time I've basically been a walking talking commercial for Shutter. But you, it's, want, you want to like plug Fangoria <laughs> while you're here too? Some other uh, like Fangoria is awesome, okay. but but I mean like, and I'm not saying. Saying any of this because I because I worked for Shutter. Uh, yeah, I'm just I, saying it a little. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not currently working for Shutter. Um, but no. But I, but I think that like if you go on their service, there are going to be movies you're going to like. There are going to be movies you don't like. But every movie that's on that service is there because somebody loves it. It's mm-hmm. not. It's not just like oh hey we can we were able to like-. get these thirty movies cheap,
2: so we put them on the air. Yeah. If yeah. It, because there have been other horror networks like that.
1: There have, and also, you know, I mean, I'm not down on Amazon Prime or anything. I love Amazon Prime, but a lot of the stuff that's a lot, if if you, if you get into the weird corners of it, there's a lot of stuff on there that just seems like, oh yeah, no one cares about the rights to this. So they probably got it pretty cheap. Hmm.
2: What other bits of the genre spectrum do you think is not getting its due? Would you say that? uh, I mean,
1: I think when you dig into any genre, a lot of them don't get their due because I think that, you know, what ends up happening is people who don't love that genre. So I'm gonna name a genre that I'm not the world's biggest fan of: musical biopic. I don't I don't hate musical biopics, but I don't like seek them out, especially. Every once in a while, something great comes along, sure. and And uh, kind of reignites it, and then you get a whole bunch of terrible things. Yeah. And then <laughs> any genre, romantic comedies. I mean, like you know, there's there are your you know when Harry Met Sally's is out there, and there there are some you know amazing movies, and some of them don't even star Tom Hanks, believe it or not. <laughs> One or two. Yeah. Um. No, but I mean, like, there, there are some amazing uh, rom coms out there, but like, I, I think if you were to do a survey of most of them, most of them aren't that great. The, the thing is that most, not just movies, most art of all kinds, novels, paintings, and everything, most of them aren't that great. And so some things rise to the top. What differentiates kind of horror? and i think lately maybe with within the last 10 15 years uh, because visual effects have become something that you can learn how to do at home so sci-fi suddenly you know can be done on the can be done cheaper than it was ever done before and done well if you're willing to put in you know if you're willing to slave away at after effects or cinema 4D or for whatever it is for long enough um, so i think that some of these genres are less uh, they're less contingent on cast so like you don't have to cast brad pitt in your horror movie and in fact it works against your horror movie if you cast a giant movie star a lot of times because you're like well they wouldn't kill off samuel l jackson and you, i'm using deep lucy as an obvious exa- example counter example but sometimes horror movies will have less experience or less well-known actors and they can be made cheaper so i think i don't actually think that the quality is any worse uh or better i think that in general what ends up happening is like it's easy to overlook a movie like if meryl streep is in your movie that's that's uh an endorsement just the fact that she was in it right but if you're making a horror movie and you're intentionally not hiring name actors because we don't want to ha- walk in with expectations of what's going to happen to who and who's going to live and who's going to die so i i think it's easier to overlook them i also think that like there are so many subgenres, but people tend to think like, I'll get into arguments with people about Silence of the Lambs. Is it a horror movie? Yes. Absolutely, it's a horror movie. But people are like, no, it's a thriller. It's a this, it's a that. Okay, yeah, it's a thriller. It's also got a guy making a skin suit, you know? like and it, That's horror. It, 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 name, it name another movie where a guy makes a skin suit, and it's not horror. I'm obviously with you on that. And there's even kind of lately in in the wake of Jordan Peele's uh, rise as a filmmaker, this talk about elevated horror. Mm. And I I have read so many think pieces about how he's classing up horror. Now, I don't know Jordan Peele, but I assume if you were to talk to him about it, Jordan Peele would be the first person on earth to say, no, there have always been great horror movies. There have always been what people are calling elevated horror movies or horror sci fi where it's being used in, in an allegorical way to say something bigger about society, which is what he's doing. And, you know, every horror movie isn't like six attractive teenagers in the woods being hacked up by a crazy person. That's that's a a very specific (laughs) subgenre. Yeah, it's a popular genre, though. You see that that particular trope a lot. You do. But honestly, I don't think you see it as much anymore. I think Mm. that it was kind of a creature of the 80s and it kind of petered out in the 90s. And then, you know, I've worked with Adam Green and Adam Green made the hatchet movies. And they're essentially a throwback to that Mm. and a loving throwback to that. But I, I, I do think that like sometimes horror movies tend to lean on things that are shocking or disgusting cheap shots, whatever. And even even the best of them. do. I mean, like Silence of the Lambs, not to keep going back to that. Well, but Silence of the Lambs has, you know, a scene where Hannibal Lecter is wearing somebody else's face to to make an escape. Spoiler alert, everyone. <laughs> you just gave it away. <laughs> but <laughs> but but it's like it's a big, shocking, disgusting thing that happened. And it's and it's unexpected, you know, or is unexpected the first time I saw the movie. And horror is going to use that kind of thing is horror. Nothing but those things is horror. If you watch the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is Leatherface uh, a character that you're supposed to love. No, you're supposed to be really afraid of him. Uh, You know, it's about boogeymen. And I think that you'll see if you go back and look at a lot of those movies like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the original Toby Hooper, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, unbelievably gorgeous cinematography because these people are really trying to make a well-crafted film. And there are subgenres like I'm not the world's biggest fan of the torture porn stuff that was really big about 10 years ago. Wasn't my thing. Mm, I saw inter- style movies or uh, I would say like saw two onward. Uh, the first saw I wouldn't count as, as torture porn, even though a lot of people do. I think it's more like the usual suspects with a couple horror moments. Hmm. Um, it's, uh, let, it, let me go back real quick here just to Silence of the Lambs because Silence of the
2: Lambs, uh, I think people might forget too, that it won five Academy Awards, including I thought, Best, it, won, I
1: thought it won like eight Academy Awards, five Academy Awards, including, okay. including Best Picture. And did it not win Best Cinematography for Tak Fujimoto? Another person on our bucket list, by the way.
2: Uh, it did not.
1: Oh, sorry, Tack. But from a cinematography point of view, I think that movie is a masterclass. Sorry, I'm way off topic here. I mean, I do think that right now we're kind of living in a weird renaissance of horror films and think pieces aside. George do you think it
2: has anything to do with the political climate in this country? Well,
1: I actually it's funny you would mention that or maybe you're mentioning it intentionally. I'm not. So years ago, I kind of came up with the theory that when Republicans were president, the horror movies were better. Hmm. And I I went so far as to make a spreadsheet, which I can't find, but I was trying to make a point to a friend of mine because it's like, you know, you've got, you know, going back to like the late 60s, you've got your Night of the Living Dead into the early 70s. You've got uh, The Exorcist and then you get into the mid 70s. And granted, like the first Friday the 13th comes out during the Carter administration. But most of the Friday the 13th and all of the Nightmare on Elm Streets is and well, the first Evil Dead came out in the late 70s, but the other Evil Dead stuff all came out while Republicans were president. And then you get Clinton in the 90s and, uh, and Scream. Scream is like an anti-meta horror franchise. Sure. And so it's kind of saying, like, don't be afraid of anything. That's just ridiculous. And, you know, even my own beloved Blair Witch Project comes out in 99. But and, and there were good horror movies during that period of time. Candyman came out during that period of time. Like Shocker. Uh yes well shocker actually was a- shocker was 1989 that oh. was Wes Craven and that Whoa. was when, when George you. George H W Bush was president oh okay so <laughs> I'll go Wishmaster to- I'll go toe to toe with you on these yes you're right Wishmaster was I think Wishmaster might have still been George H W Bush um uh, but uh but then Dawn of the Dead but then you get into the original Dawn of the Dead was 1977 I want to say. So that's during the I'm not going
2: to play with you. You're I'm uh, you're way out of my league. Yeah.
1: (laughs) But uh, I mean, I'm not saying that there are no good horror movies when Democrats are president. And I'm I'm actually not even making uh, a specifically political statement about it. I do think that Republicans tend to stoke fears. And I think that Democrats tend to not do that as much. They don't fear monger. They have other sins whatever I'm not trying to make a a a grand political statement but I will say that obviously during the George W. Bush administration that's when you have the rise of torture porn so you got your saws your hostels, your devil's rejects Uh, you know you, you have the rise of Eli Roth Rob Zombie um, and and that that kind of thing, and then during the Obama administration, it kind of it's not that they stop getting made. Movies like The Witch, which I love, The Witch comes out during the Obama administration, just doesn't make a splash. Hmm. And I feel like if that movie came out today, I think it would. And you know, after Trump became president, you have a new Halloween, you have a new Suspiria, uh, a Quiet Place. Uh, hereditary midsummer like it's been kind of a an embarrassment of riches of amazing horror movies which uh, anyone who knows me at all knows my politics i'll i'll trade the awesome horror movies for like you know not feeling like the world is coming to an end every day all right so that's enough about me running my yap about uh how much uh horror doesn't get enough respect but uh you know if you see a horror filmmaker on the street give him a hug You see, uh, you know Adam Green or uh, you know Rob Joe, Zombie, Joe Lynch. Rob Zombie especially loves hugs. Oh really? Yeah. I don't know. So I've never met free Rob, hug movement. Ne- never yeah. met Rob Zombie. Seems like a nice guy. Uh, <laughs> h- hug a horror filmmaker. Uh, that, I'm going to make it. That, that that should be a T-shirt. Anyway, at <laughs> so, very least a hashtag. So speaking of hugging a horror filmmaker, our guest today, uh, Mike Giolakas, is kind of on the forefront of some of the most amazing stuff being done in genre uh, filmmaking today. And uh, you had to kind of steady my my hand and say, uh, you can't talk for an hour and a half about John Dies at the End, which as sure as you're born, I would do. Yes, you would. <laughs> um, but he also shot It Follows, Glass, Us. He, he, he's he got an amazing story and amazing filmography. And uh, without further ado, here is Mike Giolakis. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We're here at Hot Rod Cameras in beautiful burbank california with mike gulakis thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me i i can't hold back how giddily excited i was when i heard that you were going to come on the show because uh, much to Ilya's chagrin i'm obsessed with horror <laughs> movies i love horror movies they're they're kind of a giant passion of mine and not only have you you've done several uh, outrageously noteworthy ones uh of the last decade but one of my favorites which is john dies at the end which we will most certainly get to <laughs> but before we even get into that I kind of always want to just start because we're talking about the creative process and we're really sure. just talking about how we take words and turn them into pictures. Our first question is always the same, which is when you're reading a script, because I have a belief that uh, a lot of some DPs see it in composition and some DPs see their work in lighting. Mm-hmm. What is your process? How do, how do you go about it?
0: Well, yeah, I wouldn't say it's specifically composition or lighting, you know, exclusively. It, I think it's, it's maybe... Depending on as I'm reading throughout the script, it's you know one scene. There may be certain moments that point me in a certain direction mm-hmm. for whether it's composition or certain moments that have more of an impact. Oh, you know, I think oh, based on the location and setting and perspective of the the scene, maybe maybe the lighting would have this kind of thing. But it's not. It's not. I don't. I guess I don't have a sole focus. Like I'm not. I don't think of it in one way or another. I guess totally like legit. That, yeah, sorry. No, no, no. In <laughs> fact,
1: the DP who put that thought in my head yeah. actually told me on, on the show, his name's Fraser Bradshaw. He was like, if that's what you thought I said, uh, you misunderstood me. But, <laughs> uh, but I still think it's, it's, uh, valuable as, 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 yeah. as, as kind of cracking open to me the you know, the mystery of people who, who, who do what you do and figuring out, you know, words into pictures and the process of doing that. So for instance, how many times do you think you tend to read a script before you even would go meet with a director to talk about it?
0: You know, usually a couple of times. I'm really interested in what their take on it is, mm-hmm. kind of before I try to implant too much of a you know, any kind of images in my mind. I, I'm kind of really interested in how they're seeing it or mm-hmm. they're visualizing it. And you know, chances more often than not, they've lived with this for a while before longer than I have. And you know, and I'm a big believer in in respecting what they do and having like that single vision. And trying to you know trying to support that so so I guess I'm kind of curious to see what they're looking to bring to it first and then from that I'll kind of it's, I don't know I guess it's, a, it's a, like a long process over I guess over uh, you know a month or so. Well, like if
1: you're, if you're meeting with the director for the first time and like, let's say you don't have the job yet, they're meeting with you and they're like considering several people, how do you present the material or your ideas or whatever, when you're talking to them or do you wait for them to talk first and riff off of them or, you know, like, do you bring them mood boards or written ideas or I'm not really, I'm not asking about your sales pitch for yourself, but I'm more about how do you start the conversation?
0: Yeah, I guess we talk about some references of Mm -hmm. other films and stuff that it, you know, that may, certain parts of it may may be applicable, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, I have certain, there's certain, like, I'll read it and I'll have certain ideas about certain scenes. We'll talk about specifically about certain scenes and just overall tone of, like, camera movement and whose story it is and how we wanted, like, camera to relate to that Mm -hmm. person well, and, and yeah. a lot
1: of a lot of your stuff also tends to be kind of in the horror thriller kind yeah. of kind of genre. L- let's go back a little yeah. bit. Did you set out to work in horror and thriller? Was that was that something that you were that you were focused on doing?
0: Not really. Not. It's just mm-hmm. kind of. I guess the first horror film that I did was John Dies at Mm-hmm. and you know I had got that interview from a gaffer that I had worked with who actually worked with Don back. On Phantasm uh, one and two. Oh wow! And he and yeah and he recommend so he recommended me to Don when he was when Don was starting to. So you're talking about Don Coscarelli. Yeah, Don Coscarelli. Yeah. So when he was starting to do that film, so he recommended me to Don. I you know I had an interview with him. He sent me the script. The script was pretty fantastic. Mm-hmm. Didn't quite know how we'd be able to do it for <laughs> that amount of money. Yeah. But but I mean um but I you know I really loved. You know, it was such a great script, and I liked Don. You know, I was a fan of his work. I was a big fan of Bubba Hotep oh, and yeah. so it's kind of thing I could, couldn't say no to. I mean, well, let's let's go back yeah, even yeah. further. So you went to FSU,
1: correct? Yeah. Was that yeah. undergraduate or graduate? Undergrad. Yeah. Uh, did you did you go to grad school at all
0: for film? No. Okay.
1: No. But like FSU, uh, and I say this as a fellow Floridian, uh, is that uh, FSU was kind of known, I think it had a reputation kind of like USC would have in, in, in L.A. Like it was the school that would like pay for your thesis and like they'd kind of, I think, patterned their program after USC, if I'm not mistaken. Yes.
0: Yes. I actually didn't go to, f- I wasn't in the film school there. Oh, no. No, I, um, I tried to get in uh-huh. a couple of times and- they didn't. I didn't get in. Oh, I'm but, mistaken. Yeah. <laughs> but I, what I kind of made my own um, path there. I, I went into the visual arts program. I was, I'd been doing photography, you know, in high school, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I was always, oh, you know, photography and still photography was always a big interest of mine. And so I, I officially did fine art, but really hung around the film school for most. Spent most of my time at the film school and made a lot of friends. At the program there, and were you like just working on people's student films? Yeah, just working on people's student films. Um, I was there at the same time with you know with, like I was saying with James Laxton and mm-hmm. Barry Jenkins and Adela and that that whole Moonlight crowd. That's amazing. And um, and then also we quite overlapped a little bit, but David Mitchell, who did It Follows, mm-hmm. he was also uh, an alum there as well.
1: Oh, I didn't know he was an FSU guy.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so he, he Adela produced his first film and and his editor also uh, Julio. He he went to the program too, so there's like it was like a community that we kind of were. Were you DPing at all while you were at FSU? Um, occasionally, they wouldn't really let me, uh-huh. but <laughs> but I did uh, I did do a couple couple films, yeah, hmm. with uh, a couple of student student films when I could, and uh, but mostly I was like gaffing, and just trying to get as much you know set experience as I could, and then kind of combine that with the fine art program how did the fine art program think about
1: what did they think about you going off and doing a bunch of stuff with film was there like any way you could have changed courses and gone into the film program there
0: no i mean i I, because i applied coming in as a freshman and Mm -hmm. didn't get in then you could apply again going into your sophomore year and i didn't get in oh wow so my thought at that time was just to kind of stick around and then maybe do grad school there but at a certain point i felt like i kind of was ready to to move on That's interesting because I I
1: sometimes think that there's like a built-in belief that you either have to go to film school or fuck film school. And uh, it's interesting that you, and now that I think about it, when I was in film school, there were a lot of people who weren't in the program who would come out and help out on our films. And some of those people went into the industry in one way or another after film school though, or excuse me, after college, how did you start? Like, did you know at that point that you wanted to go into the film industry and and how did you kind of chart that course?
0: Yeah. I mean, pretty, I mean, I knew I wanted to go in the film industry pretty much right when I was applying to colleges mm-hmm. in high school and and so I didn't know I mean I, I think I knew that I wanted to do cinematography you know, when I was freshman I'm pretty sure oh it was, really yeah like specifically was, cinematography yeah yeah um, so if you didn't get to do yeah. a lot of shooting
1: in, in college like yeah. when did you start actually doing cinematography
0: I, so in college I shot I don't know maybe like four projects and mm-hmm. then with one of those projects uh, one of the directors of that project he put together a, like a Super low budget feature in Pennsylvania for like two hundred grand. Oh wow! That and that was kind of like immediately after school. And what was the feature? Two thousand five. That it was a feature that really didn't go anywhere. Oh okay. It was was called Book of Caleb. Mm -hmm. But it was a bunch of friends who had just graduated the program, and they all kind of went up to Pennsylvania and pretty much worked for free for like I don't know three four months. Nice. And lived (laughs) in uh, yeah you (laughs) know lived in uh, the director's parents' house in the basement on bunk beds. Uh, we, <laughs> yeah, we had yeah, no, no, seriously. It was in his basement and it was uh, the director and the producer on one bunk bed and it was a uh, production manager and me in another bunk bed. Oh, okay. <laughs> and so that was my first. And that we, and we ended up shooting 35 on. And were our, you the DP yeah, on that? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of my first experience and it was a big learning experience, you know, for me. Um did it get some festival play or something? At least no, no, no. Oh, really? Didn't, 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 but um, but I mean, it was a good group of people, and and I did that, and then from there I moved to New York for a couple of years, and then while I was in New York for a couple of years, I was trying to shoot, trying to gaff, trying mm-hmm. electric, and just really make a living, whatever, doing whatever I could, doing, you know, weird film jobs on Craigslist.
1: <laughs> so, so you know that you want to be a DP. You're in New York. Yeah. Something I, I'm always interested in is where did you draw the line? In terms of like, were you willing to? You're willing to gaff? Are you operating for other people? How focused are you on like? Nope, I got a DP. I need to focus on this more.
0: Yeah, I guess I didn't have that feeling. I know some people do, but I didn't have the feeling that I needed to solely DP. Like, mm-hmm. um, I, I I kind of always felt that I wanted some time to learn the craft from you know from the technical side. Yeah, um, and, and um, so so just really just watching, being able to. Given being given the chance to watch other people work on the electrical team, you know, and watching other gaffers light and watching other DPs, you know, light and shoot, you know, so I thought, I I I always enjoyed that experience. So so I was I was happy to kind of get, uh, you know really, really any chance that I could to to do do that. Did you end
1: up working for like any noteworthy DPs or DPs who taught you amazing things or even gaffers who taught you amazing things?
0: Well, not, I mean, in New York, I worked for some great gaffers, and then, but I was only there for a short time. Mm -hmm. I I came out to LA and started working for a, I was working for a gaffer out in LA for a while who was like an old school gaffer who I learned a lot from. And I, you know, I, for me, you know, I did that for a few years when I came out here and I feel like I learned a lot just Mm -hmm. Being able to uh, see the logistical side of filmmaking and also learning lighting. And when you when you came yeah. out here, like I, I feel like people tend to kind of fall into a groove,
1: and it's like if you're working on commercials, you tend to work with commercial crews and TV, TV crews, low budget features, low budget crews, you know, whatever. What what grooves did you find yourself in?
0: A little bit of both. I kind of tried to not stay too long in, in one of those mm-hmm. because I because I didn't really want to get. Kind of trapped in, in one thing too yeah. early. So I did TV for a while. I was also kind of mixing it up with some commercials, with some commercial DPs, some friends shooting, you know, gapping for some friends when I when I could. I would gaff for James Laxton mm-hmm. when he had stuff, and some other friends from FSU. Another DP, Armando Salas, he shoots a lot of great TV shows. He's oh, cool. Shot. A, he was one of the DPs on Ozark.
1: Oh man, that show's amazing. Yeah.
0: So is he based out here? Or is he? He's in, based out here. Okay. Yeah, yeah.
1: He shoot that in Atlanta, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So. You know him, another DP alum, Craig Keefe. So there was like a group of al- alumni from, from FSU that I kind of. So it seems stuck like stuck even though like, you weren't yeah. in
1: the program there, like you, you might as well have been in the program. You knew, you have a lot of contacts that you made there and you work with them and in tandem and you kind of got the benefit of being in film school, which is to have that community.
0: Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it was a really good group of people, you know, when I was there and, and we you know, still work with a lot of them to this day. My gaffer is from the program. Oh, cool. And um, several other people I work with, yeah. Uh, so that
1: probably brings us right up to about when you did John Dies at the End. So I'm fascinated with Don Coscarelli in general, and I, I promised Ilya I would make this as brief as possible <laughs> because if it were up to me, we would do the John Dies at the End podcast, <laughs> not the cinematography <laughs> podcast. So Ilya's glaring at me. <laughs> so uh, our, on our second episode, we had a guy named Chris Coman. Uh, who shot Phantasms 2 and 3, I believe. And I I think he might have done some second unit on Bubba Hotep or something like that. And also, as I told you before, I, I, I've had the pleasure to work with Chase Williamson, who was the lead in John Dies at the End. And Don Coscarelli has kind of a different way of, of scheduling a shoot. Can you talk about that at all?
0: Yeah, sure. So it was a, uh, I think, I don't know how many days we shot, but the, I don't know, and I don't know the exact budget, but it was. I, I want to say it's probably over a hundred mm-hmm. and under, I don't know, 600. I, I, really? I don't know, somewhere around there, nice. but, but it would be my guess. But in any case, I think we ended up shooting like 45, 50 days. But it was like, like
1: three days a week and then you'd have like a couple weeks yeah. off, right?
0: Yeah. It's been a while, but I think the thought process was, I mean, it's such a massive movie yeah. with different, so many different set pieces and locations and, and, and it's just rip shit bonkers. Like it's such a crazy <laughs> concept from yeah. from from the word go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So to, to that respect, I think you know he kind of realized that and thought that the best way to make it would be to be able to shoot little segments at a time, and then you take a week and you basically prep the next segment. Mm-hmm. And so essentially, you don't like it's you know instead of just getting on the train and then pressing go and then getting off at the mm-hmm. station and then kind of not having any control really in between this, this, you kind of got a little more breathing room, a little more time to think about things because you have such a limited budget. I think we were able to make them try to make the most of what we could. But did you yeah. find working in a style like that? Uh, like you said, kind of not getting on the
1: train and getting off the train, but like many stops along the way train, was it harder to get momentum going, you know, cause you have to kind of in a sense, almost like wrap well, and then prep and then shoot and then wrap and then prep and then shoot over and over again.
0: It was hard only because it was in the sense of on the crew side, it was difficult, obviously, because, mm-hmm. you know, it was a low, obviously a low budget production, low budget rates. And, you know, when you're only working like a few days here and then wait a week and few days here it, Yeah. the same people can't stick around for the whole time. So we kind of had a rotating group, you know, here and there. So that, so that, that, that became difficult, but I, I kind of enjoyed, I actually kind of enjoyed that, that sporadic nature of it. How did you go about? Because I don't feel like that
1: movie. I mean, it 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 only feels low budget in that it's not chock a block with giant movie stars. Although it does have Paul Giamatti in it, for God's sakes. But uh, the scope of it doesn't feel compromised by its budget, if that makes sense. Like watching that movie, like you you have no idea where it's gonna go next, and it doesn't it doesn't feel like. Like a lot of low-budget movies feel like yeah. they're constrained in space. Like even his previous film, Bubba Hotep, feels like it It doesn't have like lots and lots of locations. This thing is constant. So like what did you do to kind of maximize, to get the money on the screen the way you did?
0: Well, I, th- I think, I mean, part of that was in our scheduling. I think mm. the way Don structured the scheduling in the shoot just um, tried to keep things as simple as we could. And really it was the dialogue and the writing is so funny so I think mm-hmm. it became really about respecting the dialogue and the script and and so keeping the coverage simple and not getting too fancy with any kind mm-hmm. of um camera movements and really trying to capture the best performance and you know I think that was that was really how we'd start each I think scene if I remember it was really just making sure we got chase, making sure we got rob and mm-hmm. and and then we'd add in the stuff from there. Because mm-hmm. I think I think Don realized that you know we, we, we it's not where we're going to compete with X Men, uh, but what makes what makes no, it is a very different product than an <laughs> X Men movie. Yeah, I think more X Men movies need a
1: giant creature made of meat. <laughs> probably true. <Yes. laughs> but um, it, so yeah, but so that premiered at Sundance though, right? Yes. Yeah. So mm-hmm. uh, so you premiere at Sundance and tell me like what was your feeling about horror before you did that because that obviously kicked you into the into the pantheon of dps who specialize in that
0: yeah i mean i don't know it wasn't a huge thing where i started getting like
1: offers (laughs) offers
0: (laughs) um you know it was a special movie and 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 i think it had it You know, had a really you know it's kind of a cult small audience so so then i think so it wasn't i think it's just me i think that that movie was literally just made for me (laughs) was was
1: there a connective tissue between like did john dies at the end get you noticed enough to do It follows or did that come completely
0: separately well, it was kind of, it was kind of separate, you know, it follows, I, I knew David Mitchell from school uh, a little bit. Uh-huh. When David was getting ready to do, it follows another f- a friend and um, a director that, um, from our friends, uh, mm. he kind of recommended me to David. Oh, cool. And, and so, you know, I read I read it, and I interviewed, met with David, we talked about it, and so, and we kind of felt, you know, we had, I think it was a really good meeting, and we similarly about.
1: So, I mean, that movie is, I mean, it's, it's, it's amazing, beautiful work on your part, but uh, the reason I kind of ask about your feelings about horror films before that is that it follows, I feel like kind of kicked into high gear, a certain appreciation of retro horror from like the eighties. And a lot of it I think is the soundtrack of that movie, but I also feel like there's something about the look of that movie that feels, it, it feels like it's paying homage to an earlier time. Uh, was that something you were consciously aware of or is that was that kind of the direction you were trying to go in and if so like what were the kinds of movies that like had inspired you
0: yeah the big thing on the look of that was that David had this idea that he wanted to create a world that wasn't didn't have a specific period of time that mm-hmm. you could pinpoint down so it felt timeless in that way yeah. and, and so you know and especially in that you know in some areas of the country you go into some areas of the country and it feels like a time capsule from thirty years ago and stuff like that. But then yeah. you know, but then people have clamshell readers <laughs> and stuff like that. So I think that was a big part of that and that came in the production design and you know and, and some of just our references of uh, of what we wanted the movie to look like. So like the Crutzen you know, Crutzen photographs. Mm-hmm. Who? Uh, so Gregory Crutzen is a contemporary still photographer mm. who kinda of does these massive large scale staged photographs. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And of, you know, suburban kind of scenes. Mm-hmm. I think um, I have seen those. So that was a big reference for that. And then I think that in his his work is also kind of timeless in that way, I think, in a similar way. Now, did uh, were you the one that brought the those photographs? or? Um? No. Well, I mean, Cruton, I have been a, it was a huge fan of Cruton for a long time. Uh, I actually, you know, I was in the fine art I did fine art for school, and he, you know I, I was kind of always like fascinated by his work. He had a there was a Yola Tango CD that came out with his work, and, and I, I that's how I kind of found him off that. But yeah, David had him in his lookbook, you know, from the beginning, mm-hmm. um, a bunch of those photographs, and and so as someone yeah. with a fine art uh, photography background, do you
1: often like look at fine art photographers as a visual reference to kind of spark different looks? Like who are some of the photographers that that like really uh, inspire you visually,
0: or maybe you've used as a, as a reference for some of your work? Really like uh, Alex Soth, Alex Prager, mm-hmm. or two that I'm really a fan of. I and mean, Gregory Crewdson's always you know he's always been a big fan of his. Uh, it used to be like back when I was first starting out, kind of like Jeff Wall and Sandy Skoglund. When you're looking at, at a
1: photograph, and maybe this even kind of goes back to that first question I was asking, like are what are the what are the things from a photograph that as a cinematographer you can you can be inspired by and kind of pull and put into your own work? Is is it a more of a composition thing? Is it more of like a textural thing? Like what what are the things that jump out at you when you're like, ah, I can steal that idea? <laughs>
0: Um, well, sometimes it's specific. you know, if I'm looking for you know a specific scene that takes place in a location, mm-hmm. I want it to have a certain feel, you know, like it's a moody scene at night, and I love you know like Todd Hito, who mm-hmm. does these amazing night exterior photographs, um, kind of love with that like, he's a big reference. It has a kind of a mystical quality but also feels very natural at the same time. So I might might think, oh, okay, well, there's this night exterior in a suburb. Maybe I'll pull some toto stuff, and I'd like this color temperature for that stuff, I basically. Uh, usually when I start a project I'll break down some set pieces and by location mm-hmm. and then kind of pull references for each of those locations. Is that something that, you share same, with yeah. with
1: crew or is that something that's mostly just kind of for your inspiration?
0: Mostly for me you know, I know a couple times I've done like kind of collages. Mm-hmm. I'll put like a collage of you know based on co- you know colors that I like or compositional images that I like kind of onto like one big 40 by 30 inch kind of and I'll print it out you know on a nice photo paper and And you're going to hang that in the office and just have that, just stare off at. Oh, that's smart. And other people probably walk in the room and realize like, that's, that's the look we're going for. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like that. It helps me to just the process of like
1: putting that together. Now, when you're working with a director, do you, do you share that kind of stuff? Do you go back and forth? Do you create any kind of notebook or any kind of reference manual for what you're about to do visually?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, I mean, definitely we'll share, you know, with David Mitchell has a very kind of a clear vision of what he likes and has a very specific taste and colors and a very kind of like old movie aesthetic, which is pretty great. And then Knight will want to see some kind of a rough idea for some scenes and some. And by Knight, you mean M. Night Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan, yeah. And
1: he storyboards everything meticulously, correct?
0: Yes, yes.
1: And uh, I think you're the first person we've ever talked to who's shot one of his movies. So very fascinated with his stuff because it all has like a really, it has a very particular look but i've always heard stories about how it's like the the boards are kind of god on his set
0: yeah they are you know in his films i'll do all my breakdowns from the boards which is kind of great so we can be very specific in terms of our mm-hmm. key gear requests and things like that and and there's there's a you know, yeah, I just, I, I love, I'm, you know, a visual person. I love seeing each shot how he wants to connect together in it and it's pretty much, you shoot it all that way. Yeah. Know. Uh, when you're working in it on a project that is so
1: meticulously storyboarded, where do you find the most creativity in what you're doing at that point? Like what's, what's the best part of your contribution that you're able to give when the director knows all the framing that he wants or she?
0: Well, I mean, part of that is, um, you know, on, on split, I came in, um, Think halfway through that process of him storyboarding, mm-hmm. and he storyboards with uh, the uh, same storyboard artist that he's used since The Sixth Sense. Oh wow! Um, yeah, so it's, it's, he has a system in place, and, and so it was so I got to kind of sit in and, and hear what he's thinking and how he's thinking about shooting the film, and and we talked about certain scenes, and and um you know he's very much into the psychology of the camera, of like and how the camera kind of reflects certain per- person's point of view in each scene. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the the goal that, that he approaches, how he approaches each each scene like that. Yeah. So we'll talk about that and then, you know, make amendments on set because things will come up and the actors will add, you know, input and just logistical reasons, you know, we'll won't be able to do certain things. I mean, that's good but to yeah. hear because,
1: yeah. you know, I, I'm always concerned. I mean, when something gets too, like, pre-visualized, sometimes yeah. it has a, a tendency... Not always, but sometimes it's like if the actors don't have the freedom to be, you know, to find the blocking a little bit, that can be difficult. But also I imagine working with those kinds of actors that you're working with on that, like those, you know, they're they're all going to come in with strong ideas. But also with the exception of McAvoy, they'd all worked with him before. So they probably like they knew how to work with him.
0: Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, he even I guess my take on the whole board thing is and I think he uses it in a very strategic way. He'll it's there, I guess, because. At least going, even if you don't end up using it, shooting with it on the day, it's at least going through the process of boarding out each scene, then trying to execute that, mm-hmm. you know, on film. Even though it's heavily storyboarded, it, it's not a, um, you know, a Marvel movie yeah. where we have where each frame is going to be is previsualized and it's going to be executed to the tenth degree of <laughs> the previsual yeah. because you know they're just just given the nature of the budget, you know, things are inevitably going to change and, and also just bringing in the cast and, you know, and having that part of it, it's, it's, it's going to, yeah. it, you know, that that's going to change. And then, so does he board you know, the whole movie, like, even yeah, like yeah, yeah. straight straightforward yeah, dialogue yeah. scenes? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I mean his whole, I think his whole philosophy is, is, is really trying to pick a point of view for each scene, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and trying to tell that, um, reflect that through the camera. So, which I think is makes you know his movies incredibly unique. Of course, you know it's rarely in a situation where he wants he'll never he'll never say, oh let's get a medium here, let's get a medium here, let's get a close up, and let's get a wide shot. Uh-huh. We might do that, but it's all planned out because he wants to cut at a certain point to their close up, and he wants to cut to a certain point of that wide shot. For yeah. you know some kind of he's not shooting psychological coverage. effect. He's yeah, not,
1: he's not finding it in post. He's found it already before you even shoot.
0: Yeah, I think that's the goal, and that's the approach that that he takes. And I think it's doing three projects with him now. I've learned a lot from him, and mm-hmm. and and it's been you know, yeah. So it's, that's been a kind of an amazing experience to see and kind of learn and grow taking a slight step back with with It Follows, I sort
1: of feel like we're in a little bit of a renaissance of of uh, horror where in the past, like in the 80s, I feel like and, and I actually have an axe to grind about this personally, but I feel like a lot of times horror movies are considered kind of like Lower than other things. And then what I think happened was people like me who grew up on horror movies, you know, then just became like middle class people who go to movies. And suddenly the stuff we grew up on became the really exciting stuff to go see in the theater and movies like It Follows to me was uh, was a revelation because of how bold the concept was and also the execution of it, the, the way that it looked like I just remember those those circling shots that just kind of just panned around 360, you know, and, yeah, and, and were, we're, kind of maddening uh, in the best way, like, like, <laughs> like really uh, a distinguishing signature
0: idea cinematically. Where did, where did those kinds of ideas come from? Those kind of came up, I think naturally through, through discussions that David and mm-hmm. I had, we, you know, we kind of similar to night, you know, David and I kind of, we didn't have a luxury of a storyboard artist, but we, Pretty much made a shot list for every the whole film. We, mm-hmm. we you know we just met at a cafe for, you know three months beforehand in LA before we had seen any of the locations and and we kind of went through the script and kind of broke it down. It's best you know to mm-hmm. how, you know how, how we wanted to. Did you go through the whole it. the whole script? We went through the whole script and you know obviously we hadn't seen locations at that point so we got there and some stuff changed and whatnot but a lot of it you know a lot of the I guess the, the you know the core ideas kind of mm-hmm. kind of I think kind of stuck. It is We're a making. really sticky idea, but also like some of the execution of it, which I'm assuming
1: a lot of it was practical. Am I wrong? Like, I don't I don't think there was a lot of digital. Yeah, no,
0: there's, there's not. But um,
1: but so to me, that relies entirely on your craft. And like I remember there's a scene in the house where like, you know, figures coming kind of towards us out of the darkness and stuff and like the audience uh, shitting their pants. So like when you're, when you're building those things, like how do you go about constructing that? Like literally yesterday we were talking to the DP of 30 rock, which is all about comedy. And, you know, to me, comedy and horror kind of are, are sort of twinsies and that they both rely on, on surprise. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how do you, how did you keep that alive? Like, again, like I feel like a lot of it in that movie is in the camera work.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the, we, we tried to have a very restrained approach to the camera. We, you know, it was very, the idea was to play things and, and wides mm-hmm. and not necessarily Play up jump scares too much. There is a couple in there, yeah. but it wasn't. It wasn't so much uh, people coming around corners and yeah. that kind of a thing. So, so it was. Uh, well, there are no. Yeah.
1: It's a movie that has like no cheap scares in it. Like they're all very, very earned. But yeah. there are some like truly hair-raising moments, and I and I really feel like it's a lighting and camera uh, achievement that like when when they happen in that film.
0: Yeah, I mean, part of it was that we didn't try to make, you know, didn't really want to, there no, none of the references. We didn't have, I mean, we weren't really pulling too much from horror movies for references, you know, mm-hmm. per, like Paris, Texas. I mean, obviously, some Hitchcock. David's a huge Hitchcock fan, and he's a big Cronenberg fan. And, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, we was also like Paris, Texas, um, and, and a bunch of mo- mostly old movies. David watches, like David has... I don't know, a, a, an enormous collection of DVDs. <laughs> and, and and he's such a fan of films from, you know, old American films. So, so yeah, so that was part of it. I mean, I guess the other thing too is like, you know, we'd make, we'd have some kind of rules. Like we, one of the rules was, you know, we never wanted to fake the perspective like a, of the POV of the It, for instance. Mm-hmm. So we broke it a couple times, but for the most part we stuck to it. Whereas if, you know, let's say one of the it's where you know 100 feet 200 feet away and it's walking towards you and um the idea would be not to go on a 200 mil lens and and see it up closely in a full shot you know yeah you'd play it in the wide and see it small and then let it gain and come towards you slowly yeah, yeah. you know um you know that that kind of stuff you know which i think i think that adds you know adds, add, adds a lot to the tension rather than cut close <laughs> up it, yeah you know and then, yeah
1: no, and I remember those those spinning shots where it's like after a while you get used to like okay this is what's going to happen in the movie so you're looking at the whole screen to figure out where's this thing going to come from. Uh, so uh, moving again forward to split, you know, so working with uh, M Night Shyamalan and kind of understanding would would he go over all of the boards with you like prior to the shoot and kind of walk you through how everything was going to be and yeah,
0: hundred you know. percent. I mean. We, we'd, um, you know, in, in prep, we spend a lot of time, you know, talking about it. And so, it, you know, it's, it's great because then I can look at it and I can look at the frames and I can think about lighting mm-hmm. in a more specific way than yeah. just a general idea of like, oh, this scene takes place in this room. There's four characters. We're probably going to need, you know, this many shots. Uh, so I'm going to need, you know, a generic thing with the lighting. This, I could say, oh, well, you know, maybe we leave the doorway is going to be open so we can have the light coming out and, you know, in from the door the mm-hmm. whole time, you know, and not play the lights in the room off. Or, or, you know, something like that. So that, that was incredibly helpful for me. And then in Glass, you know, I, I kind of came out extra early, just on a little bit on my own and, you know, just hung out with him and the storyboard artist for like uh, two months. When well, you
1: were doing that, would you have any any input or, you know, would, would they like would you ever say like, hey, well, what if we did blah, blah, blah? Or would you, you know, discuss the scenes as you were going and kind of
0: help shape it a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a collaboration, but it's a definitely his, you know, mm. it's his, you know, he, you know, to me, like the great directors are, are great filters, you know, so they'll take ideas and might take this one, they might reject this one, but they're mm-hmm. going to filter it down through their uh, lens and, and their, ide- and then and that kind of shapes, that makes it their singular vision.
1: Yeah. Uh, I definitely want to talk about us, not just because, you know, I, I've read a, about a million think pieces about how Jordan Peele is classing up horror. I even think he probably would not. He would probably say horror has always been classy. You know, like he 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 has such a, a great affinity for it. But I actually feel like watching that movie in, in a sense maybe a little bit like It Follows, like that movie drips with affection for other horror movies. Even in that first shot where you're watching the TV, there's like a Chud video cassette off to the side. <laughs> and, and, you know, I really appreciate that. So how did Jordan Peele find you? And like, what was it like working with him? I mean, uh, I've only ever heard the most wonderful things about, about what it's like working with him, including from Charles Papert, who we had on here, who shot Kian Peele. So you, you get an opportunity to work with him.
0: How, how did that come about? Well, you know, he was a big fan of It Follows. Mm -hmm. and so he not surprising yeah so he reached out when he was uh starting us Mm -hmm. we talked on the phone and uh, you know he sent me the script and well and i'm not going to avoid us
1: spoilers so (laughs) if if you're if you haven't seen us and you don't want to have spoilers I, I would, uh, you know, maybe skip to the end of the podcast now because I have some some serious questions about just just the, the process and the look and how you came up with certain things. And again, I'm afraid I'm going to spoil stuff. I, I'm not shy about talking on on this uh, podcast that uh, I, I have a now one year old child. And the truth is, I don't get to go to the movies much. I've been to like five movies in the last year. One of them was us. Um, my wife and I like hired a babysitter. We could not wait to go see that movie. So. Uh, again, an amazing kind of brilliant contrasty look, but then there's also the tethered situation, which kind of has a different look. Can you talk at all about how you, you designed the looks? And again, I'm not afraid of spoilers here.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think so much of that has to do with the, between the two different doppelgangers has to do with uh, production design and, mm. and the uh, hair and makeup choices, wardrobe choices and stuff like that. I mean I'm not I, you know I'm not a huge fan of, of, of trying to force the uh, image in a certain way mm-hmm. for, for that 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 kind of stuff. I mean obviously there's we did some things when we were doing um, some of the dancing flashbacks and stuff like that and yeah. gave that a defined look. but other than that I kind of like to keep it kind of simple and, and kind of in a you know and let let what's in front of the camera do that. A little bit more. Well, and and also with
1: somebody like Jordan Peele and, you know, maybe this would be a more appropriate for Get Out. But when someone moves from acting to directing, as, as he did, you know, like when I first heard that he was making a horror movie, I was like interested, but like not skeptical about anything to do with him. But just like actors, a lot of times are not the most visual storytellers when they when they first start out. And yet I find his work to be outrageously visual, like really some of the best stuff. And I'm wondering how much of the visual does he bring to the table? How much is he asking you to bring to the table? Like how, how involved are you in the, in the visualization process of, of how the movie's going to look?
0: Yeah. I mean, he's, I mean, he's a very visual person and he actually like night we storyboarded, ended up storyboarding uh, pretty much hundred percent of the film. Oh really? Yeah, so we, we started in prep and then kind of continued through the film um, mm. doing that and the, you know the storyboard artist was actually on the whole film with us and so we'd go at the end of each day and kind of run through if, if there wasn't anything that was boarded we, or things that needed to be amended, we, we would revisit that at the end of each day mm. for the next day. Um, a lot of that had to do with just the nature of the shoot, given that you know there was uh, everyone was playing another version of themselves. Yeah, and that version of themselves took two hours plus to change back and forth, so it was it was never a situation where we could look at bad you know bad Adelaide, and then flip around and look at good Adelaide, uh, you know and, and yeah. you know so it was always it was always something that needed to be scheduled heavily. Uh, and so, yeah. So I can see how storyboards would be essential to keeping all that straight in your head. Yeah, everything. exactly. Essential to knowing and for the you know for the ads and everyone to know who is going to be on screen uh, for what, and so which people could be changing and what what outfits and mm-hmm. and all that stuff. And, and not to mention the fact that two of the cast are, are minors, mm-hmm. so you know we can't. Most of the script is at night, so we can't go past ten p.m. Sometimes midnight. So yeah, it becomes quite challenging. So (laughs) so from a practical stance, the storyboard were were very helpful. But also from just, um, you know, I think, I know what I love about Jordan's stuff is it 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 has a great rhythm to it, just the way the sequences all seem to flow. You know, I think, you know, a lot of the storyboards kind of Pretty much ended up how they were on the on the on screen. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah.
1: So you kind of so you feel like you shot mostly exactly the way that, that the movie was boarded for the most part.
0: For the most part, and again, because of of just the uh, logistical part of it. But
1: did you think that having yeah. having worked in that method with M Night Shyamalan kind of helped you to master working with boards in this particular way?
0: Yeah, yeah. It was definitely I mean definitely helpful and definitely um, just having the boards makes to me gives the then hopefully the edit a certain pace and flow to it yeah well also like his stuff
1: like uh, the shots that he constructed in that I'm assuming that you're you know part of this is that I feel like a lot of them are like a reference to a Hitchcock thing, or there's like a weird Easter egg in a corner or something like that. Oh, yeah, and I assume yeah. that stuff has to be kind of meticulously planned. Even even the Chud VHS tape, you know, it's like he's kind of dog whistling to somebody like me, like, get ready, this movie is for people. <laughs> I, I'm making this for people hundred, who are into this.
0: Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And he's all he's very much into placing as many Easter eggs as he as he can. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and he and he thinks about you know he thinks about everything. So. And is that yeah. stuff, like, are you coming up with that at the board, uh, when like, when you're boarding stuff? Or you yeah, I think it's a, throughout the process. I think he's always, you know, he's always thinking about, you know, the next scene, and he'll add things, and he'll, you know, it's, he'll take suggestions from anyone. And then, again, like, kind of, like, think about it for a day or so, mm-hmm. and, and, and then, you know, mold it to what, what he wants. So, yeah, he's...
1: Excellent, excellent. Well, <laughs> I hope to see more collaborations with you and him. So, I mean, let's talk a little bit about, like, you know, just, like, how you work on a given day. Do you sure, tend to yeah. operate or do you tend to work with an operator?
0: Most of the stuff that I've done is I've operated myself. Mm-hmm. Um, on us, I had a great op, Ben Verholst. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we kind of uh, swap back and forth. It just depends. I'm, I'm, just, I'm a, just a fan of operating. We, so we had Ben on there, and he's an amazing steady cam op and amazing op. And he then came with me to the next TV show. And, uh, and for, on that, I really didn't opt too much. I really mm-hmm. let, you know, the first time I kind of let, let someone else opt, and I enjoyed, I enjoyed that. Now, do yeah. you uh, do you tend
1: to use multiple cameras when you can? Or, is, I mean, like, I know that a lot of producers want multiple cameras rolling all the time anyway, but, yeah, uh, like, what's your comfort zone with that?
0: Yeah, I mean, luckily I haven't had to. I'm not, I mean, I'm kind of of the opinion of where it's, you know, if it's, I feel it's necessary, then then great. If it detracts from the visual point of view of the scene, mm-hmm. then. Well, I assume with, yeah.
1: With M Night on given the degree to which he boards, there's probably not more than one camera ever running, right?
0: Yeah, I think we only we only ran two cameras like just a couple times, like for a few shots, maybe. Like for and, yeah. stunts or something. you, you Yeah, exactly. You had... What and, What and about I, with Jordan Peele? Did he tend Jordan? To... We ran a few more just because there, there was some comedy involved, and mm-hmm. that was helpful. And there was also you know the kids involved, and so. Sometimes that was that was kind of just a necessity, and um, and then you know c- a couple of stunt stunt sequences for sure, and then with David we've only the two movies I've done with him we've only had one camera really, <laughs> so so and do you um, consider yeah. it a luxury to be able to work with one camera or you, yeah, yeah I mean I, I yeah. We'll see how the rest of their career goes but I, I really <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know enjoy working with a single camera as much as possible yeah.
1: Well, cool. Um, thank you so much for coming out. Is there a place that uh, online where people can see your work? Um,
0: sure. Yeah. I mean, I have a website which I don't update regularly. Nobody does. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mike. Mikegdp.com. Cool. Cool. Are but, you on um, like Instagram or Twitter or any of those Yeah, things? I'm on Instagram. I'll I'll occasionally post on there, and uh, Twitter. I'll uh, I'm on there, but I don't really. Yeah. I just read read. Uh, read news you get of hours that. of your life yeah. back if you're yeah, not yeah. posting on Twitter. <laughs> But uh, but no, thank you guys very much. Oh, thank you for coming out. No, it's a real honor.
1: (laughs) So that was Mike Giolakis. Thanks again for coming on, Mike. Uh, Just a giant fan of your work, and um, I I can't wait to see what you do next. Thanks, Mike. Hey, uh, Ben, it's our favorite time. Uh, it's it's time for me to watch more horror movies on Shudder. <laughs> Second favorite time, right. it's time to pay the bills. All right, let's do that.
2: All right, so uh, we have to thank our, our sponsor, Ari. Ari, a wonderful supporter of the show. And it actually dawned on me recently that some of our listeners for the show might have certain skills that Ari is looking for. Aerie actually has a very- I'm imagining like Liam Neeson, like they have a certain set of skills. A certain set of skills. You're gonna bring back my daughter or else. Uh, no, no, so, <laughs> uh, really, Ari Aerie. <laughs> we're not going to go down the Taken or what yeah. was the other movies he did? He was like, like all, all, uh, of, all them. of them. Yes. Any Liam Neeson movie. Any uh, Schindler's List, Dark Man. <laughs> Dark yeah, Man. Yes, of, of course. Anyway, uh, so so Aerie actually uh, I, many of my good friends work for Aerie and Aerie is an incredible company and all around the world, truly international company, which made me think earlier today. Uh, because I knew that I was going to have to uh, talk about something wonderful about Aerie. They have a really good job site. So if you thought that you might ever like want to work for a large international camera lens and lighting manufacturer, you can actually go to Aerie.com forward slash EN forward slash company forward slash careers forward slash current dash vacancies. Or you can just go to their, their main website and you can find this. But it is the Aerie job portal. And if you are in Korea Los Angeles, Germany, Austria, Tokyo, uh, there might be a job for you. They actually have a whole lot of stuff. So truly international company, lots of offices doing different sorts of high tech things, uh, management things, admin type of things. Take a look and you can see what Aerie might be able to do for you. What? area
1: you might be able to work in oh that's so bad i'm sorry that's so bad i'm sorry
2: (laughs) yeah i all our friends at area are listening to that right now groaning groaning, oh we're pulling our sponsorship exactly pulling our sponsorship right now for that joke dad jokes
1: are just regular jokes that hurt a little (laughs) they like leave a mark and now short ends all right ben so it's it's short end time it is that special short end time so, uh, what, what 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 do you got for us? So, in the mid '90s, I read a book called "Directing Actors" by Judith Weston. Mm-hmm. And it changed the Famous. way it changed the way I looked at directing. When I moved out to L.A., I, uh, I I saved up my money and I took. She had a class called acting for directors that was like a three-day intensive that I took. And then she had an act, uh, an acting and directing school that was integrated, so the acting and directing classes were kind of together. And she would do actor director workshops, and it was really uh, I would kind of go back every now and then and just kind of do it to tune up my uh, my directing skills as it pertained specifically to working with. Actors, because I feel like, you know, on this show and whatnot, we tend to sit around and talk about cameras and angles and lenses and pretty colors and stuff like that. Yeah, editing and stuff like that. But honestly, if you don't have good performances, if you don't have a good script and you don't have good performances, doesn't matter how good anything else is, your movie's gonna suck. So what what is new about this? And so I apologize if I've ever put her book down as my short end. I'm I, I would not be surprised if I've talked about it before. But Judy recently recorded the whole thing as an audio book, hmm. and it's going to be available on September the twenty fourth of this year. And uh, having, probably available on Audible. Uh, yeah, I think that's who she did it for and I've taken her classes. She is a a brilliant teacher. Uh, I feel like very few people kind of put the craft of directing actors, which I would contend is probably the hardest part of being a director is knowing how to work with actors. And it's, it's kind of an ever evolving, ever growing process for me. And I I never feel like, okay, I have all my actor skills down As, as soon as I think that they they make it harder actor to work with it's just I'll work (laughs) with an actor who who surprises me with their process Judy has uh like a lot of it is about like giving actors actions rather than adjectives, giving them something to do rather than a way to be because giving them a way to be is sort of saying to them like, Hey, I want you to do that, but can you do it angrier? That's making them go like, okay, was I angry enough? And uh, if I was sitting across looking at me, like, should I snarl more? Should I squint my eyes more? Like, what is ang- What is this? What does this asshole think angry looks like? I'll-, I'll give him more of that as opposed to like really attack. So-and-so really chastise them. Like, really make them feel bad, like giving people uh, directions like that. And also one of the things Judy, and it's in her book uh, about, about her approach is sort of like when you read a script or you're writing a script or you're having a story, uh, you, you know, you're creating, you're crafting a story, you're a little movie plays in your head when you read it, when you think about it. And one of the first things you have to do to, I to I believe, and she posits to kind of achieve the best uh, outcome for that story of, as you possibly can is to kind of disabuse yourself of that movie you're not going to get that movie that's sort of the first version in your brain and then actors are going to come in and they're going to interpret it and and you need to open your mind to interpretations that aren't exactly what you had in mind there are even well known amazing directors who I see doing it the opposite way and um, I mean sometimes you'll get good work regardless you know like if you cast A-list actors in your thing they're going to give you good performances but sometimes you'll see stuff that feels lifeless and bled dry and to me that's when a director has fallen in love with their idea of what the story is going to be of the little movie that plays in their head not letting it be a living breathing actually existing thing and to me that was one of the big takeaways I, I got from her book was to like know I mean you know what you want you know where you want the drama or the comedy or the whatever to go you know where you want the scenes to go and a lot of it is, is analysis and and finding the mo- those moments in the scene and I think she calls the dramatic event but also being open to to, to collaboration mm. and you know this is a purely collaborative art and if you're not open to collaboration you really are kind of doomed to uh you might as well go home well you're going to amplify all your own mistakes mm. so you know giving if, if i could give actors a line read i wouldn't now and I think it it took me a long time to get out of my head like oh here's how I here's exactly how I see it and frankly it does go into cinematography because I feel like I'll have an idea for the shot breakdown, say, of a scene when I'm, when I'm in pre-production or whatever. And I, I go so far as to diagram stuff. I do overheads hmm. and, you know, I'll show it to, you know, like lately the DP I've worked with the most over the last few years is uh, George George Floyd. Yes. And, you know, I'll show it to George and George will be like, well, what about if we do this over here? Hey, you know, for over here, then we're going to get this and this and that. And it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. The movie in my head maybe is not, it is my complete vision, but maybe the reason that I'm working with George is to add something awesome to that. And that's what actors are, and that's really what every craftsperson is. You know, um, we have to give a, a, a little shout-out here to uh, Bill Totolo. You know,
2: Bill Totolo. I can't remember what episode he was, but he was on the show. Yes. He's a cinematographer, a DP, uh, and also director on occasion. Uh, I, I saw... want to say he was like 16. I'm not sure. Mm, I think he might have been... Uh, seven I I don't remember but anyways something like that anyway uh Bill yeah I saw him him post that he loved that book too on his uh, Facebook feed I think he's
1: taken Judy's classes as well and unfortunately I don't think she teaches she does uh consulting one-on-one but she doesn't have the school that she had for a while and I and I kept referring people to it and also like one of my favorite actors that I work with is a guy named Donald Tom Scapello I met him through her hmm. um and uh, another actor who I know really well and love and have worked with several times is a guy named Brandon Bales I also met him in one of her classes she's uh I I, I really respect the whole process that she kind of the, the whole package that she is pitching as like here's how you direct actors and I it makes me think about the craft on a deeper level and I and I even do think like you could you could apply a lot of what she's saying to writing to camera to you know all, all to production design to visual effects to all the crafts and I feel like it forces you when you're working to be a lot more open and present and paying attention to what is actually there and happening as opposed to what you imagined would be there and what it might look like
2: yeah uh, uh please note uh all you know director hacks out there that this book could actually change your life and make you a better director
1: yes I can't recommend it highly enough, and I'm sure her. I, I haven't heard her audiobook because it doesn't come out until September 24th, but I will be getting it okay so then my short end this
2: week is it's another product it's another camera product and you know if, if you're not interested in camera products I suppose you can skip this portion but uh, I'll, I'll, something 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 case all a
1: joke and, and,
2: and we're done okay right. so so here's the thing uh, most people are now I would say if you're listening to this podcast uh, familiar with the concept of the steady cam the steady cam is a wonderful invention that allows you to float a camera almost by magic it's not magic at all but almost by seemingly by magic in all kinds of ways uh, without camera shake and things like that. Well... uh, It is magic. Charles Papert had nothing to do with it. Go on. (laughs) So... In recent years, electronic stability controlled gimbals have done a lot to uh, improve this for, for uh, the, the lower budget folk out there. They haven't had to take uh, all these classes to learn how to use a Steadicam. Uh, they can essentially get a, a shortcut, and it's not exactly the same look, but it's close enough for well, most you people. Get
1: if you're working with a small like DSLR-sized camera or even something as small as a RED, it's a lot cheaper than a Steadicam rig.
2: Can be a lot cheaper, for sure. Well, the smart people over at Steadicam a couple of years ago came out with something called a mate. Steady mate was sort of a bust it didn't exactly ever catch on because Mm -hmm. it didn't exactly solve all the problems But it did did a couple of things really right Well, they are they went back to the drawing board and they came out with something new called the steady mate s and the steady mate s is Specifically for a small handheld gimbal that's very popular called the Ronin s -hmm. now the steady mate s turns the Ronin s into a sort of Steadicam. So, uh, but because you still have all the magic of the electronic stability controlled gimbal, you don't have to be a master at the cam to use it. So um, essentially with this kit, you get a vest, you get an arm, you get the gimbal and some weights for your Ronin-S and you can throw a relatively robust camera on the top of it. I recently used the Panasonic S1H along with a kit from a company called Cinemild, which allows you to add extra weight to the top. And you can get an experience that is very much like a Steadicam in that you don't have to support all of the weight with your arm or two arms. You can have your body support all the weight and you can work for v- much, much longer periods of time without the fatigue that comes ar- comes
1: from using a gimbal. When I first saw those gimbals, and I think I might have been with you at NAB when they started getting really big. I know I, I saw it at NAB and I actually picked one up and I was like, what the hell? I have to hold the camera out like as with my arms fully extended in order for this to work. And I was like, man, I mean, like. As I've as I've been on shoots that have used them, and I've uh, directed stuff that has used them myself, it's like I see the utility of it, but but yeah, that's it's not the the design is not ideal if you're going to be on it all, for a long period of time.
2: Yes, not, not at all, and. E- The Ronin S is designed around smaller cameras and the SteadyMate S actually makes what uh, should be a much easier proposition that much easier for someone who is trained. Now, it's not entirely intuitive. You can't operate exactly like a Steadicam. You can't operate exactly like a gimbal. But when you merge these two things together and with a little bit of practice, it will completely transform the way that you shoot because you're able to work for much longer periods of time, much longer shots without all the sorts of fatigue and you don't have to go... dedicate weeks months years of your life to to classes and training basically if you can grip the thing and you can set up your your gimbal correctly you can rock and roll how, how much is it do you know yeah they're not that expensive um if you already have a vested arm that's compatible it's 295 dollars. if you don't have that it's around a thousand there's a slightly heavier weight heavier weight version i think it's like 1500 oh. but still we're talking about Tiny, tiny dollars compared to what a typical Steadicam would, and you can put an S1H with a PL mount, with a cinema lens, with a follow focus, and the the weight kit, and you can make it all work, which uh, is frankly amazing, and mark my words, there are some indie feature film people out there who are going to be doing stuff just like that, renting a fancy set of lenses, buying an inexpensive camera, putting... two three thousand dollars worth of accessories together and voila the really nice thing about that SteadyMate s2 is that they give you a couple of uh standard separation 15 millimeter lightweight rods at the bottom for your counterweights Mm -hmm. but it makes it a really easy place to attach a wireless video transmitter a monitor and all kinds of other things so it's it's really like a a cup holder for your coffee cup holder yeah if you want the onboard coffee maker if you want the cup holder you can you can do that Did I see that Steadicam released a monopod called the Steadicam Air? Yes, you did. And that's really something. And I know the people behind it who have built it as a product for feature film and television makers. And uh, Francis Kinney, uh, ASC, who is a big proponent of this, loves to work with it. And he does all kinds of cool things. But... Truly, the people who I see getting the most value out of it are event filmmakers, people who are doing stuff like uh, weddings or live events, and or the, shooting the D23 Expo. It would have been perfect for you, perfect for you. For you know, I know you had a whole rig and setup, but if you had a small camera on one of those things, you could have repositioned and you would have loved
1: it. Yeah, it's got like, am I am I correct that it's got air pressure or something? It's to, got a little like gas shock absorber type of thing inside of there. It like it's it's like so you can raise it and lower it much faster than having to like mess with knobs. Well. And, you know, I know the people at Tiffin won't be won't be thrilled to hear me say this,
2: like how much time savings there really is. If you're not going that high or that low, um, most monopods, I feel like you can flip block them or twist them pretty fast. So I don't know how much time you're really saving. But I think that uh, for people who are putting a heavier camera up top, you have a lot of confidence that that thing's not going to slip. And I think that that's really where the value is. If you were working with a very light camera and you're only adjusting one one. maybe it's two seconds faster and maybe two seconds really matters for
1: an event. But to me, it's not about the two seconds. It's about being able to do it quickly with your, like with your left hand, if you're right handed, like, like not having to, with stuff and I find that like a lot of times those monopods like you it, it's not the they want to lock steady and and
2: this is you, you cut me off before I got there but I think what's really great about it is actually you get to keep both of your hands on it the exactly. adjustment is taking place with your foot which n- never before was anyone able to do and that I think is where the the cleverness is is that if you need to do a quick whip pan or spin around or something like yeah. that y- it's much easier and better to have two hands grabbing it and
1: use your foot for that than, than something else. Yeah, no, else. It, it looked pretty cool. I was looking at it. I know that you, that wasn't your uh, short end, but but still. no, no,
2: and, and it's it's a clever product. So, I mean, it's, I certainly don't mind plugging it on, on the show. Uh, you know, we've actually have one in the shop here, and we've been using it as a director's monitor stand. Essentially, oh. we're putting a director's monitor on top of that, and that thing is really cool. If you're moving quick with a wireless video system and having a director be able to run around and compress it really low and get down on the ground or extend it up, I think that as a director,
1: mobile director's monitor station, it's brilliant. I'll need to look at that before I leave. I I, I wanted to say one other thing about, and I know we talked about last episode about that Disney job that I did with the Easy Rig, but it made me think about Shalada Bruce Christensen's. uh, war story about shooting the Thomas Vinterberg movie. Um, nine months pregnant. Yeah. <laughs> eight, eight to nine months pregnant with a modified easy rig and it gave me like a new respect for her and I also understand why uh, shooting handheld with an easy rig all day long gave her so much core strength because. Because <laughs>
2: your core strength
1: is, is like happening right, right now. Right from, now. From four
2: days. Yeah, well <laughs> f-
1: four 12 hour days on my feet with an easy rig all day long. It's pretty intense. Mm. Anyway so that about wraps us up on episode 45. We need to thank uh, as always Alana Cody for uh, kicking ass and taking names with the producing oh yeah, yeah you, you're going to love who we've got coming up next we've got some great stuff we've got some awesome stuff coming up soon and uh, our editors Oh, yes. Ben and Abby. Absolutely. Thank you very much, guys. You're the best. You're working your asses off and we're not making it easy for you. I know that. And uh, as always, all the music you've heard is by Kays Alatrachi, the uh, raconteur uh, and multi-hyphenate Kays Alatrachi. Let's come up with a nickname for him. Maybe by next episode. Yeah, yeah. Maybe our listeners can suggest a good nickname for him. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, but you can find everything K's at www.musicbykays.com. Uh, Ilya, where can people find you online?
2: You can find me over here at uh, Hot Rod Camera and across the interwebs at anything that gives you an at sign I'm at Ilya Friedman yeah,
1: I am. Uh, if you go to my website, which is benrockonline.com, you can find all of my So there. But uh, whoa, listen to you breaking out the millennial there. <laughs> huh? Wow. Uh But uh, yeah, uh, if you go to Twitter, I'm at Neptune Salad. If you go to Instagram, I'm at Benjamin underscore rock because I didn't really think Instagram was going to take off. Uh, Facebook. A few people have friended me on Facebook. If you're uh, if you're a listener <laughs> of the podcast, I will accept your friend request.
2: Yes. Uh, pretty much. You have to think be over 35 to be on Facebook, though. I think that's how it works. That,
1: that, that's fair but you know and if you want to know that much about my dog or my kid you know I, I appreciate it um, you know LinkedIn a, LinkedIn yeah you to, <laughs> LinkedIn. hit yeah. me up on LinkedIn anyway thank you very much and we'll see you at episode 4-6 this has been the cinematography podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras find your next camera lens or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter